death. It's the most inevitable part of life. Some might say it's the only guarantee, but it's also a topic that many people shy away from because it makes us feel uncomfortable, scared or upset. It's often swept under the rug, not acknowledged or talked about until, of course, we come face to face with it ourselves. We hope to end this taboo through a series of interviews with many different people from all over Western Australia. We talk to ordinary people about their views on the grief, loss, love and celebration that is death and dying. This is a conversation on death. Hi, my name is Cheryl Blanksby and I'm here today to share a story about my um, beautiful Thomas. I have three beautiful boys Two of them are with me and one is in my heart. And um, basically it's it's a journey that I've been sharing to many about losing a child and moving on. It's not healing, but it's moving forward, I guess. Not even moving on, it's moving forward because life keeps going. Um, so I'm here to share that journey and um, just the ups and downs of being a bereaved parent in a society which I can describe as an illiterate in terms of grief, um, just because of, I guess, how the society just wants to see happy or achievement, like success, rather than talking about pain and um, loss and grief. I got pregnant with Thomas after a miscarriage, and it was like one of those surreal moments because it's hard for me to get pregnant. So the whole journey of getting pregnant is a bit stressful on its own. And straight away, there was a feeling that I was running out of time. That's the only way I can describe it, that I'm running out of time. So it was like a textbook pregnancy. I didn't didn't gain much weight. All my scans were healthy. Babies measuring good and big. It felt that this is the dream, like this is what I've been wanting all my life is to have these beautiful children, a husband, a home, a safe place to live in. And um, when we did a six weeks check, it's just a, in my head, it was just a normal six weeks check, got to the GP and then somehow the room went quiet and I'm like, oh, like normally like, oh, like the doctor would be cooing and eyeing with the baby. It was like, oh, look at you. He was quiet and I'm just like, what's going on? And um, he just said like, oh, um, do you mind doing a ultrasound and, you know, coming back, um, see me in 48 hours? And I'm like, okay, is everything okay? And then, oh, well, there's, I can feel a mass, but I'm not sure if it's a mass or maybe it's poop or it's constipation. And I'm like, okay, well, well, like he's not showing me anything to be worried about, except a lesion, which was, I thought was a birthmark. But then my water broke five days before my actual consent for C-section. And I, I went through the whole labor and I thought I'm going to give birth this 13-pound baby. Oh, my God, it's going to wreck me. But it was peaceful. So I wasn't worried. But even like if I look back now, when I was doing the registration while I was still in the hospital, like Thomas was next to me and was doing his birth certificate, I actually ticked the box deceased. And I'm like oh God, like I'm so like, you know, I'm so exhausted. Like I haven't slept. So now I'm like rubbing it off. And then that became like, and not that gut instinct again. Like someone's going to die in my family. Is that why I feel that they were like quiet? 
even at the ultrasound, something's not right because no one's talking to me. All I can remember now is we were booked in to see a, a urologist to see getting him diagnosed properly. How, how were you feeling in that stage? He's six weeks old. Yeah, I kind of didn't want to ask questions because I felt that I won't like what I'm going to hear. It became a coping mechanism. I'll wait what you tell me. If you tell me this is nothing for today, I'll hold on to that, that that's today because I can go million miles and I'll be thinking the worst case scenario and I'm constantly thinking of my oldest because my oldest is there already and I'm like, I'm like oh, I can't do this to him like I have to be some form of a buffer between all this chaos that's going to happen and him because he is he is three at that time so and my husband is like very like um I don't know, nonchalant about it. It's like, oh, like they're just doing everything they can. Like, you know, it could be, maybe they can remove it. Maybe it's benign. A lot of things is benign. But gut feeling, mother's instinct, very strong. That, no, this is, something's not right. And that's when all these terms, malignant rhabdoid tumor, paper, like, like some pamphlet, like here, this is what 99% based on the, sample is this and I held on that one percent that this could be all wrong like I grew up Catholic so I studied the whole like okay I need to pray maybe this is it like I just need to pray I shared it on Facebook asking people to pray for my son without giving any details because I was clutching on that like miracle I guess like well if everyone's gonna pray for him maybe he'll he'll be okay he went through his surgery and that was like probably the longest six hours of my life trying to wait for that, you know, phone call. And Thomas survived the surgery wonderfully, did so well, no blood loss, nothing, no, even got everything out clean, like nothing in the nodes, lymph nodes were clean. They couldn't find any nodes yet in the chest. So at that point, it as if like he's cancer free, but of course, like this kind of cancer, they start in a cell, um, like really, really tiny cell and being a baby, you won't know until they start eating again and they feed the, the tumor cells. But at that point, that big tumor is out of his body, which is the size of his head, the circumference of his head. Young babies, like they really, like they heal really quickly. And, um, we were supposed to be like, we were, they said like, oh, we're just going to keep you until we get the diagnosis properly. Like we get a hundred percent diagnosis. And I'm like, oh, when is that going to be? When is that going to be? Cause we've been here for so long. So he did well. Like, and he, he got his belly working. He's like, when he pooped, I just remember, yeah, he pooped. Like, and I would share this to Facebook with all families all over the world. And, and I'll have, like, if I read it now, I cringe because I'm like, oh, my God, I, I wish I could hold you, like me, as my old self. Because you know you're lying to yourself. You're, like, making yourself, you're, you're pacifying yourself by saying all these positive things at that point when you know deep inside that something's terribly wrong, which was the case. And I'm like, oh, God, yeah, I remember that. I'm like, yeah, you know what? We're just doing, we're just being positive today. But... That meant like, you know, not like and not entertaining a reality about death. And that's what like I think 
that's when the shift happens for me when they said the diagnosis. They took us in a room and I'm holding my Thomas and I'm like, I started shaking before everyone actually started saying anything to me. So our oncologist was there, a palliative nurse, and I think another nurse. Then my husband and I was holding Thomas and I started shaking. And it's like, are you cold? It's like, I don't know. I'm not, but I'm like, but someone needs to get this baby out of me because he's going to fall off my hands. So um, our nurse, like the one that's looking after him, took baby away, took him. And I was like, thank you. I couldn't stop shaking. And my husband had to like hold me. Why are you shaking? He's like, I don't know. I literally don't know. And um, so they broke the news and said, yeah, it's 100% now that it's a malignant rhabdoid tumor and it's stage four and um, he's got two weeks to live. I'm really, really sorry. I wish it was something else. And all I asked, is he in pain? And then they said yes, because the MRI that he did on that day showed tiny nodes in his lungs. And I'm like, oh. And the, like, because his leg, one of his, um, I think left leg now, stopped moving, like stopped like doing the kick. So there's a, a tumor now growing in his hip bone. And I'm like, oh. And um, so they gave me options. It's like, you know, we can do treatment. Um, there's no guarantee that it's because it's a very aggressive um, kind of cancer. And then they start giving me all these things. And um, and I, I said, oh, can you leave me and my husband? Just need to talk about it. And then, yes, of course, of course. So my husband was like, oh, let's, you know, what do you think? Let's go for treatment. And I said no. And Straight I, away? Yeah, I said no. I said, my mom and dad passed away. My mom had breast cancer. She went through all that chemo. She was an adult. She had terrible, terrible time with it. This is 11-week-old baby we're talking about. And if they're saying two weeks, I don't want it to be in hospital. I want it to be home. I want it to be somewhere. I want it to be with... Like, just doing something, not attached to something, not in a tube, like, not nothing like that. Because I want to be able to close my eyes and remember a non-clinical hospital memory of my baby. And then my husband, um, obviously, like, it wasn't, like, an easy decision. We said, like, can we go home? I think my main aim was, like, I don't want him to be in pain, but what about my oldest? What am I going to do with my oldest now? Like, how am I going to break it to him? So all that worries and stuff. And um, so we prepared the two weeks. And I said, I didn't say, I shared it on Facebook. Not the two weeks. I just shared that he, we're home. Um, it is cancer. Um, and then somehow I shared that what breaks my heart is he won't live when he's one, he won't live to one year old. And community of people, friends and friends of friends started making, uh, like said, we can do a birth first birthday party for your son. A first birthday party was organized for us. And all I have to do is decide what kind of cake I want or chocolate. What kind of animal, like, you know, for the favors. And it's like, oh, elephant, like, you know, elephant, because I feel like I'm like... Elephant is like my son, like he's got good memory, like he's very loving, you know. So it became all that me uh, memory making from that point. And 
a lot of people actually came in and do their, you know, do their part. Like, oh, I want to help you with this. I want to help you with that. And two weeks came. Even in that two weeks, we managed to go to Queensland through the help of um, Make-A-Wish, PMH, um, you know, friends, like, giving us money. And I'm like, what do I do? Like, the palliative nurse that we're working with, she said, look, it's okay to accept them because at the end of the day, this is love coming to you. Whatever form it is, at this point, it's love. We had this big plan that when Thomas it turned two or three, we're going to go to Disney with my oldest. So those were like the things. We have a bucket of savings for that just because we want, like we like theme parks, like me and my husband. That's one of our thing when we were dating. So these are plans and we, it's just fast forward. And the closest we can get to is Queensland instead of Singapore because we thought, oh, maybe we should go Singapore. And then that's when, oh, what if he dies in Singapore? I don't want to be doing all that repatriation or something. So now we'll do Queensland. It was a lot of love. And and I think that's that's why for me, when I look back, I didn't feel alone at that time. It's different now. But before... I didn't feel alone because I felt that everyone was with us. And um, two weeks happened and he still he was still with us. And I'm like, oh, God, yes, you know, I have no regrets because if I close my eyes now, I remember many good memories of us traveling down in Margaret River in Queensland, like, you know, watching sunrise, sunsets. Um, chasing a kangaroo or like being pooped by birds like we had like because he was in the bassinet and then all these like flock of birds and I'm like oh my god this is these birds are gonna poop and they did like and all these things it wouldn't be possible if we were in hospital my son wouldn't wouldn't be able to interact with him because it will just be he won't have an immune system and Thomas will be just oh we can't interact because You've been going to school and and as much as my oldest is affected by this, if we went on that path, in my opinion, it would have been much more of a disconnection, not only from his brother, but from me and from his dad, because it would be much more like forceful for us to be with Thomas rather than with him, rather than as a family unit. So that is my my reasoning. Like it was more... I just didn't want to cause pain. <laughs> At the end of the day, I don't want to cause him pain. If his life is meant to be short, I want it to be like memorable, not only for him or what he can remember and tell me when we meet again, <laughs> but you know, like just for me and my husband and my oldest son. And now with my my youngest, we mention him like we have a book. Some people publish like picture books of our story. And these are like my mom's group online and they published this wonderful book with just, and they made pictures like draw, like they found this illustration um, artist um, and drew Thomas as a normal, like, you know, like a normal baby sitting up and crawling, which he's never done. And I read that to my youngest, if he's interested. My oldest is still a bit like he gets emotional and he gets um, upset. So I tend to just you know, watch his cue on, on what he can and 
what he wants when it comes to Thomas and all that. And um, I have stories to tell my youngest that doesn't involve hospital. And to me, that was very important. Like that was more important than prolonging his life for unknown. You Mm -hmm. talked earlier about the support that you were given Mm -hmm. at the time when Thomas was diagnosed. Mm -hmm. And you talked specifically about how there was an online community of people who, parents perhaps, who were already dealing with grief, who reached out to you. Yeah. So um, meeting other bereaved families, especially mums, bereaved mums, um, through this online group. Um, It's actually a UK charity group. And um, they, because I shared um, Thomas's story online, and it became sort of viral in some parts of America and South America. And um, even here, like the, uh, Western Australia got and like, you know, went to our home and took pictures of us and published his story. So it, it went out there. And um, so it reached this charity in UK and they and the lovely lady also lost um, her daughter at the much older age as well, not as a baby. So that was a bit more. It's a different um, thing. So she said, like, do you want to, you know, come join? Like it's there's other you know, mums and dads and even grand grandparents are in this group and they've lost children from this type of cancer. And I'm like, yes, yes, please. And initially, like, there was, like, um, envy when you hear, like, like, kids who went to treatment and became well, but then they have so many other medical conditions that they have to live through the rest of their life because of that chemo. And, um, but then I'm like, but that's, it's different. Like, you know, like it was what worked for our family. Like, yeah. Like, so I'm like constantly thinking like, oh, it must be hard. Like if you lose someone at 18 because of this cancer and you lose someone at three years old and then you lose someone at, you know, 23 weeks old. Um, but you know, we get to chat. There's like a few, cause even with grief, if you join a grief group, it doesn't mean that we are all going to be friends because we are going through the same thing. Grief is so personal that some will not talk about it, even though they're part of the group, or they will just remember all the pain and suffering. And they kind of like, it feels like they're just trapped in there in that pain and suffering. And it will take a while, like to see the good of life again. So, that's why it's hard to connect with someone even though we've lost children. But then I met some wonderful ones whom I met in person when we went traveling. And that even now, like we don't talk a lot, but then when it's our children's anniversary, our children's birthday, we would like candles for them. We would take pictures of the kids and, you know, like pictures of our angels. And then we, you know, share it whichever way and write a letter. Like, so that kind of support is like, it's just important because it's like, um, I'm not alone. Like it's, there's so many kids who, who dies from this cancer. And it's nice to be able to like, if I'm really, really low, I'm like, hey, how are you like, you know, going to ask how they're doing. And, and in yeah. some ways that, that kind of online community is something that you can access at any time when you want 
And as you said, you know, family and friends are absolutely there in the moment when you yeah. really need them and at the point of death and then afterwards for the funeral. But yeah. then people go back to life, no, to yeah, their normal yeah, to lives. Normal lives yeah. And in some ways it just feels as if, you know, you, you're the only person who hasn't moved on. So yeah. I suppose in some ways, has it been a help to, to be able to tap into this online community and to be able to go over oh, yeah. stuff over and over again with, with people that you don't particularly know? Yeah. <laughs> um, I'd say yes and no, because there's always pro and cons, but more pro for me because... Um, it's like there's a mutual understanding of the baseline of what we're feeling and then all the other things that we've decided to do, like some went to become a social worker, some went to be an ambulance technician, just because that's how they want to honour their children. Um, but at the baseline of losing someone, going through life without that someone and being like, you know, having like a worst day and then a few good days and then a worse day, I don't have to explain how that feels. It's it's understood. And it's like that, like um, a secret language that we have. So when we talk, we know that it's acknowledged. It's like, yeah, I see that today is a hard day. And, and, and it's much more meaningful. Like when they say, like, I know it's hard, but I'm here for you. It, it really means something. Like, I believe that they're here for me. Like, um, it's, not, um, it's not just lip service because... I know that if I say that to them, that I I really mean it. It's not like just to to leave like an offer and it's like, oh, in case like, you know, you if you need me, I'm here. Like with this community, it is, you know, especially the ones that I connected with, I know that, yeah, they're not going to leave me hanging, I guess. <laughs> but at the same time, there's that anxiety of like, what if, what if, what if happens to him or like to my oldest? Like it's constant juggling of those emotions and I think that's when people don't understand that in in a life where there's grief (laughs) like this it's not just it's not linear like I could be okay for months then something happens that is not even related to anything and then I'm back to that night when I you know said goodbye or like have to zip that bag so and it's that's the bit that it's hard to like explain without either scaring the other person or making the person like um, just like shut down. Like you can see like, no, I'm not interested because it's about death now, no. No, yeah, okay. Because you know that it triggers them. So um, looking back, would you have done anything different? The only thing for me was maybe I didn't, it was my phone. Maybe I shouldn't, I should took more pictures or like I should, drop the phone and be more present because in my opinion like oh maybe I was distracted like because a lot of people were messaging like that phone just buzzed and I'm like oh my god like what is going on especially when the when the story went as they call it viral um my phone won't stop and then I'm constantly messaging um people and answering questions and I'm like Maybe I should not have done that. Maybe I should just like, you know what? I share what I share on social media. What you get is basically what I want to share instead of being. But then I felt compelled to 
connect with them because they're taking their time, like they're giving me their time and effort to actually message me and check up on Thomas and stuff. To the things that I can control, I really want to control them. Like, I want him to wear this when he passed away. I want this to happen just before he passed away. And then maybe, like, you know, if I look back now, I, I would tell myself, look, there's so just, you can't control everything, so just let go of the ones that you can't control. So at that point, had you accepted his death? Um, I started, like, um, in a sense that I know that this is going to end. Like, it's gonna, there's going to be a last day for me and him or a last day for, for him and the family. But I can only deal with that when it's at nighttime and it's just me and him and everyone's asleep. On the day that he passed away, I just, like, I had a dream and it was, like, vivid dream that all my family members are, like, at the bed, like, a foot of our bed in our main bedroom they're all crying. And I'm like, why are you crying? You're waking the baby. Cheryl, when you're talking about this, you sound so sure that he is actually going to die yeah. on that day, even though he lived way past beyond what the experts had told you. So yeah. what was that? First thing in that day, like in the morning, it's like, I think today is the day. And that time, the nurse already gave much more um just com- like comfort medicine because it was obvious like the way that my son was breathing just the breathing the color like you know and um just how like just how he is and um i i just remember like uh, i like i feel like i want to cry but i can't cry it's like that because there's so many people but then i don't want them to be out because it's their family too like so it's that, just that kind of like I want everyone to leave, but I don't want anyone to leave. Like, that feeling, because I just feel that it's important to them as much as to me. And um, the nurse said, like, um, this is normally is that breath um, when it's ending. So um, it's up to you what you want to do. Like, you know, you can, you know, dim the lights. Like, you know, like they're giving suggestions. And I'm like, well, it's bedtime, so kind of like, you know, just have night lights and stuff. And um, and I'm just, because I can listen to him. And I'm like, oh, yeah, he's still breathing, he's still breathing. And then I look at him, and he did a final exhale. And as soon as he did the final exhale, I'm like, and I, I just remember crying, like howling, not even crying, it's a howling. And then the relief that it ended, that came. And I'm like, and then the guilt straight away, quick, quick. I was like, how could you? How could you feel that relief when that's your son? And quickly I'm like, oh, crap, what a terrible way to feel. But the relief, because 23 weeks of being a carer of a dying child is not a walk in the park. And... It's not just him, it's all the other people within the family's emotion, my oldest, my my in-laws. Like I'm constantly having to think about them as well. So the fact that I didn't have to think about that when I woke up split second before the guilt hit, there was like that, whew. It's it's if like I was free from that job, if that was a job, and then guilt happened. I'm like, oh, my God. Cheryl, 
Do you think as a society we are well-equipped to deal with that final goodbye and death? Do you think we do it well? No. Being Filipino, we have traditions on the wake and how you do um, funerals and wake. And so I can't do all of that because it's not going to be <laughs> accepted in Australian regulation. But we managed to bring him back home just the day before the funeral. And um, I invited family members and some friends, like, you know, you can come and view him at home. And people are like, how do you do it? Like, that's a corpse. And I don't see it as it. I see him as my baby. He's wearing his pajamas. He's swaddled. He's got his dummy in and he's asleep. Um, but that was important for me. And my husband was luckily on board with it. And I think um, between me and him, because we're like, like, we were very open about all this, like, you know, having to hold him, having to bring him home or... Um, I think it helped him in a way, I hope so, to process grief in a different way as opposed to what he was brought up with, like culture and all that from his side of family compared to mine. You talked a little bit earlier about um, having been brought up as a Catholic yeah. in the Philippines. Um, how important do you think that upbringing was in allowing you to be able to, you know, deal with Thomas's prognosis, yeah. his eventual death. Having been brought up as a Catholic in Philippines where, um, you know, um, everything happens for a reason is like a, like a foundation kind of thought that is brought up, like God... Will not like you know God will give you all these tests in life, challenges, but He will give you things that you can handle. So those are the things that help me a lot because I will just say you know what this is it it's happening for a reason. As much as I hate that line that's happening for a reason, that gave me comfort that it was out of my control. It was not in my hands. This is happening because there is a higher like. There's a purpose for it. There's a higher like reason that I, I won't, probably I will never understand. But it helped the whole acceptance that he is going to die because he's not mine. He is God. It's like that. Like, and I wouldn't have that sort of belief or thinking if I wasn't um, brought up as a Catholic. Or, And I'm not saying that I'm like heavily, heavily like devout Catholic, but... The principles about having a God and um, you, you know, like when you pass away, you go to heaven. Those are like fundamentals for me that I believe in and gave me comfort that one day I'll meet him again. Or he's just, he's watching over me and God's looking after him. And so was my other family members who passed away. Um, but the fact that, yeah, like that, that core, that teaching, the Catholic teaching of things happen for a reason. It's in God's plan. It's out of your hands because it's all been, you know, the story has been written already by God. In Philippines, when you do, um, like, after 40 days after the bur burial, I don't know how to say it, <laughs> um, the belief is like that's when they ascend to heaven. So you gather the whole family, you have a feast because it's like a celebration that he's finally served the purgatory 
level and now he's going to be in ascension. And as a baby, he doesn't have any sin because he was baptized and all that. So it was like a big thing. I made it like a big thing. I had had a priest even come over so that he can bless the food that we got, we're about to eat so that Thomas can bring it with him, that kind. Like offering was blessed by the, by the priest. And that felt like his actual birthday, in my opinion, like for me, because having to cook, having to prepare, and then, you know, entertaining people, and then, like, just remembering the memories that we've created. So that's kind of the thing. But, yeah, it was... I remember having, yeah, we had karaoke, like a normal Filipino party. <laughs> like lots of like food and like laughter and stories and whatnot. And it's almost um, like life can carry on. Yeah. And yet life has irrevocably changed for yeah, you. Definitely, yeah. yeah. Tell me a little bit about um, the work that you do now and <laughs> how that relates back to the experience that you had five years ago with yeah. Thomas. Um, so I am a um, pediatric nurse, and um, I'm currently in a um, in an ICU environment. Um, and this has been, uh, I would say, like a goal. Like when Thomas passed away, I was still in maternity leave, and I was working in IT for many many years. And I thought, like you know what, let's do the thing of let's go back to work and see how it goes, and you know, like just pick up the pieces, basically. But it never felt the same. Like, I come home feeling emptier than I was because I didn't do anything, in my opinion, anything meaningful or substantial. And I'm like, I'm in this constant um, thing of honouring Thomas. So if my day, I just remember, like, if my day has not been about honouring him in one way, in one shape or form, then it felt that the day is empty. Like there is nothing. I was drawn to being pediatric nurse because when we were at PMH at that time, all the nurses were fantastic. They, I just, I never had one like instance of me being doubted. Like, you know, like I was expert to my child. Like I just, when I say like, look, I think he's in pain. No one said to me, it's like, no, I think, I think he's okay. Cause he's got meds. They believe me like that kind. Like I was always included. And then they will check up on me when my husband and my oldest come to visit. So it felt like we were not alone. And I'm like, I want to be like, I could do this. Did anyone ever say to you, Oh, that's a bit morbid. You sure you want to work oh, with <laughs> sick babies? No, I get, I get some like I, I would say so. I would say two out of ten will always have. Are you sure? Are you really sure? Like with what my experience was, I felt I feel that it's given me an extra tool in my tool belt, I guess, to deal with that because I've been there, so I know what they're feeling. So it it is. Um, I still, like, I, I love it. I go in and I, it's hard work, lots of walking, <laughs> lots of standing, but it feels meaning, like there's there's a purpose. And I think that's important, especially when you're moving forward in a life where you don't have one of your children. It's just unfathomable, to be honest. Like, and 
my oldest the other day said, Mom, I know now. I think I understand why you're working with babies. And I'm like, why? So you can cuddle them and you can give all the love that you can give Thomas. And I'm like, oh, you know what? <laughs> Maybe you're right. Like, And it just feels, it's it feels fulfilling. Like, yeah, does that make sense? Thanks for listening. This interview was recorded on the lands of the Wajak Noongar people and we pay our respects to their elders, past, present and emerging. This oral history collection was commissioned by the State Library of Western Australia and produced by Louisa Mitchell from the Centre for Stories. Narration by Louisa Mitchell. Editing by Mason Velios. And special thanks to executive producer and interviewer Rita Alfred-Sagar.